Welcome back to the Effort Over Everything podcast. I'm your host, Jason Kleepin. On today's episode, it is Effort Weekly Episode 9 with a team from NC Fit, Gabe Yanez, and Matt De La Valle. We talk today about cryptocurrency a little bit, putting the effort in our relationships as well as obviously in the gym. This idea of digital training versus in-person, what the future of that holds. We then go deep in the rabbit hole of double overhand versus mixed grip on a deadlift and finish it off with sport versus general fitness. I really enjoyed this episode. I hope you guys do as well. If you do, leave us a rating, leave us a review. But as always, I hope you and your families are doing incredibly well. Let's keep crushing it. Let's keep putting the effort and I'll see you next time. Let's go. Bitcoin currently at 48,000 right now, uh, dropping off its high. And um, what do you guys think about cryptocurrency? I, I wanted to talk about it because I think that it's something that's going to be around for a long time. So we are not financial experts, but I was curious your guys' exposure to it. And if you think it's like some fad or if you think it's here to stay. And if you do think it's here to stay, what type of crypto are you investing in and, and why? Oh, boy. I mean, I, I, I've listened to so much stuff from, you know, kind of like the, the super bullish people on this stuff. And actually, I recently Michael listened Saylor. to, not Michael Saylor specifically, I, I can't think off the top of my head, but the one I listened to recently that I highly recommend people listen to is um, Peter Schiff on, uh, on, the, on Logan Paul's podcast. Um, I just thought it was a good one because they kind of keep it super light and entertaining. But if you don't know who Peter Schiff is, he's probably one of the biggest people that says that like crypto is trash. It's, it's, you know, someone's going to get stuck holding the bag at some point, buy gold and blah, 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 yada, yada, yada. So it's kind of the other side of things. And I just think that with everything, it, it's one of those things that there's so much buzz around that it can be easy to kind of get really caught up in, you know, it's only something super promising and only listen to that point of view. And I think that's where people get into trouble, like, like with anything. Um, so I think that, you know, regardless, I, I highly recommend kind of checking both sides of the argument because the argument against it is that, you know, the, the value of all of these, you know, digital coins is just because people think it's going to have more value, right? It doesn't have any inherent like tangible use. And on the other side of things, it's, you know, this could be the future of currency, right? Like we're all going to switch to something decentralized and, and it's going to revolutionize how companies take payment and, you know, how people can, you know, do transactions without a middleman in a bank. So I get both sides of it. I just think that, A, I can't speak to it from like any sort of position of authority. And I just think that if anyone's thinking about it, to not just go down the rabbit hole of one side of the argument, because that's where you get in trouble. Mm. So I'll just share and then MDV, I'll share what I do. So I got interested in cryptocurrency about a couple of years ago and I started kind of researching. I never really did anything. I didn't, I didn't dabble. And then like a year or two ago, I was like, you know what, for me to really feel like I'm educating myself, I need to actually go do it. And so what I did was I went on and Coinbase actually went public after I, I you know, after. So I use Coinbase as just easily be able to go on there and go see what the different cryptocurrencies are trading at. And I have purchased some through them, but I don't keep it in there because their interest rates that you receive on the crypto isn't that great. I could then transfer it all into a company called BlockFi. So I don't think you guys have heard of BlockFi, but what BlockFi does is they give 9% interest on the USDC coin. And so what that is, 
is it's a coin that's pegged to the US dollar. So it doesn't have huge flux up or huge flux down. It's just pegged to the US dollar. But because it is a cryptocurrency, BlockFi goes in there, uses your money to go then loan it to other people who are interested in buying cryptocurrency. And in return, you receive 9% on that money. So they also give interest on uh, you know, uh, Bitcoin and Ethereum, et cetera. But for me, I set up a Coinbase account where I kind of had started because it's, it's, it's publicly traded. I feel like that was the most safest bet. I then transferred into BlockFi because based on all the research I had done, it provided the best interest rate and it is backed by like a shit ton of money. And so it didn't seem like it was just going to fall through the, you know, fall down because this money is not FDIC insured like banks are up to 250,000. So you have to be aware of how much money you're putting in there because there is no FDIC insurance there. So I set up a Coinbase account. I then set up a BlockFi account to put that money in to gain the interest. I also then put a little bit of money and we're talking a fraction of what I'm, I'm just dabbling here because I want to try it into this USDC coin to get the 9% interest. In addition to that, I downloaded something called MetaMask, which is a crypto wallet, which allows you to get altcoins and use Ethereum and gas pricing to buy altcoins off like these normal exchanges. All of that to some people is like, dude, you're talking gibberish, but I only learned it through experience. So Coinbase, BlockFi, and MetaMask are the three that I primarily use. And with MetaMask, I only did it because I want to know what it was like to use a third-party wallet and why Ethereum was going up so much because of gas prices and how you buy things. And I felt like by downloading them and going through the process, even though we're talking about hundreds of dollars, not millions of dollars, it still taught me a lot through the process. So I'd recommend, that's just my experience so far. There's so much to learn. Yeah. So much to learn. And it's, it's honestly a fascinating space. I, I got probably really into it because of how linked it is to trading cards and kind of that whole world. Um, and now NFTs and it's, it's fascinating, man. Um, a lot of risk, but it's, it's, it's cool to see it at kind of these beginning stage. And I think what you can do with NFTs is actually even more fascinating. Um, what some companies are already doing, what Gary Vee is doing with uh, his big conference, Beacon this year, which I will be going to because I do have one of his NFTs. So you can't get in. You can't buy tickets. It's only if you're an NFT holder, you're invited to this thing that he's apparently, and you know, knowing Gary Vee, it's probably going to be absolutely bananas because it'll drive the demand for these. Because So if you hold one of his NFTs, you're invited to Beacon for the next three years, as long as you're a, a, a token holder. So really? That's kind of the, yeah, that's the smart Where is that at? Is it in New York? No, it's going to be in Minneapolis in, in their, their like NFL stadium in, in May. Um, and it's going to be like all about NFTs and stuff like that. But again, like you can't get in. And those NFTs specifically, um, you know, when, when it launched, they did a Dutch auction for those. So Dutch auction, for anyone that doesn't know, is instead of you bidding and the prices go up, it has a, a, a ceiling price that it starts at. And it has a time where it's set to end and then the price just keeps going down and you can claim it at any point. So to give you numbers, something could be, you know, it starts for sale at 10 Ethereum in 24 hours, it's going to hit the floor price, which is two Ethereum. And it just kind of like continues to get lower and lower. And at any point someone can claim it, but obviously if you claim it and it could have kept going lower and lower, you might've bought it more expensive 
than what it oh, was. I've, I've never heard of that before. MDV, have you heard of that before? That style of, of Dutch of auction? No, haven't heard so of it. When he initially launched his NFTs, a lot of them hit the floor price, which was half of an ether. Um, and now they I think the floor price of VFriends is I think six Ethereum or seven. Um, so it's pretty crazy how much they've you know gone up. And a lot of it is the fact that he keeps pushing that this conference is going to be amazing and how he's going to build the, um, the IP, the intellectual property on these characters. So if you look at his content, he always incorporates now patient panda and all these little like what they are is they're animals, animal cartoons that all represent a trait that he thinks is important, like patience and working hard and so on and so forth. And this whole collection, he's done a great job. I'm a big Gary Vee fan though. So I, I definitely went into the weeds with that stuff. But um, who's sm- profiting most from the Gary Vee friends? Um, well, I mean, Gary Vee. Probably, <laughs> but yeah. because a, a big thing is that on every, every resale of these NFTs, um, they keep a, a, Percent. a percentage on every single sale. So all these flips might be happening and there's people making a ton of money. Cause if you bought this thing for, you know, whatever, 4,000 bucks, I think was the equivalent of the floor price and you're flipping it for 60,000, um, you know, that's, that's real money. But on every single one of those flips, VFriends keeps a, a, a percentage of that in perpetuity. So as many times as it gets flipped in the history of this thing having value, there's always a cut to the person that minted the NFT originally. Yeah, um, this conversation, I mean, I, I get overwhelmed by this stuff, just speaking <laughs> candidly to everybody out there. I, I kind of think that some of it is real there's some reality to the situation that this type of currency and these these values are going to be around for a while i don't know if all of them are going to stick around there's a lot of yeah there's a lot of ones out there that are just look like they're created by somebody in their grandma's basement and then you know flipped and sold for quick dollars and the NFT conversation gets even thinner for me as you go down the line and you're looking at JPEGs that some fucking 10 year old created in their living room and now, you know, selling them for tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars. Admittedly, I don't know a lot about this space. And I think that some of that is uh, both naivety and then lack of interest in it. But I also don't have a lot of money to play around in the space to really make it as meaningful uh, as it could be in terms of like investments, you know, I, I dabbled in Coinbase. I bought some, uh, BTC, I bought some ETC and ultimately it was like not enough money to really be meaningful. And I was losing interest in watching it just go up and down and eventually just kind of hold at what I originally invested. So I pulled it out. Um, you know, one of the interesting things, Jason, that you said is like, uh, all of this is, some of it's speculation. Um, I don't know if Gabe or Jason said this, but the economy and just in general, it's just confidence. What, what confidence do people have in investing in whatever they're investing in? And I, I don't think that NFTs or, or cryptocurrency is really any different than the, what we define as the traditional economy. Like what is the overall confidence level of people who are putting their money into the economy. I just read something recently or listened to something recently where somebody was talking about like, what, what even is the economy? 
the economy is just mind blown. What a large enough group of people think either positively or negatively about where we're at. And yes, there are some kind of harder measures on like what we're looking at in terms of, you know, inflation, what the Fed is doing, uh, you know, how things are generally going. But a lot of it is whether or not people feel good about investing or pulling their money out. Yeah. My, 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 the reason why I brought this up in today's topic is I think it's important to educate yourself on different things that are going on around you. And I think that for me, even if you put a dollar or $10 or a hundred dollars in these different platforms, it'll at least educate you on the process. Cause I was unaware of some of these Ethereum gas prices and things like that. I didn't even know what the hell that was. And you could talk about it, but to actually go do it with a small amount of money, I'm talking very, very small. It at least educates you. So that was, that was one of my just takeaways I wanted to share is that it's really helped me. And then you could just evaluate your appetite for risk, just like in anything. And maybe you don't do anything, but at least you made the educated decision to not pursue that instead of just, you know, kind of saying it's stupid and turning your cheek, you can at least go check it out. So, but if things like the yeah. metaverse eventually materialize into something that is really meaningful for a large portion of the population. If people really get interested in it, I listened to something recently where the person, the pundit who was talking about the metaverse, they were like, this thing could either take off and skyrocket. And this is the new way that people are living, communicating, uh, spending cryptocurrency or accumulating uh, digital real estate or buying NFTs, or it launches and people go, this is fucking lame. This is so disconnected from reality that I don't want anything to do with it. Mm. And then all of it kind of doesn't collapse right away, but it definitely has less staying power than if we continue on a more traditional kind of in-person reality. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that it's definitely, it, it's one of those things that I feel like it's inevitable that we're going in that direction. I think that the part that isn't inevitable is it like 20 years? Is it 50 years or is it five years? Right. Are you talking about like, the I metaverse? Is that the one where you could buy property on like a digital, like, yeah. is that like what? Yeah. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. And that, that's where kind of NFTs, you know, the argument that NFTs kind of really play is the fact that as we go into having more of a digital presence, you know, same way you would want to buy a Picasso, why wouldn't you want to buy, you know, digital art, right? Like it's, it's, the same in that world is, is kind of the argument. Um, because again, the only thing that gives a Picasso value is the fact that there's, you know, there's cultural kind of like value behind it. And the fact that it's, you know, a one of one and right. what NFTs allow you to do now is actually take a JPEG, take something that, you know, I can have the same image you can, because I can just screenshot it. But now there's actually some technology that says my JPEG is the one of one of that image. You can take a picture of the Mona Lisa. You can make a print of the Picasso, make it look exactly the same. You can even do a really good counterfeit. But at the end of the day, people find out it's a counterfeit. They're not going to pay you what they would for an original Picasso. The argument is that now there's the technology for you to have that digitally. Huh. But there's also something about experiencing those works of art in person. Like if you go to the Sistine Chapel and you see what Michelangelo did on the ceiling, or if you go to the Louvre and you're able to see the Mona Lisa in person, there is intrinsic value in that for human beings to experience those things with their own eyes, to actually be in front of this and to witness something that was created hundreds of years ago. You know, I think that 
the one thing that's confusing to me, even in the digital space where I understand, all right, this is the actual shit. Like I have the actual digital Mona Lisa <laughs> and somebody else just has a, a digital photograph on their phone. I'm still not fucking seeing this thing in person. Like I'm just still looking at it. <laughs> You're putting it on your monitor. Yeah. yeah. My phone. So like the value of it to me, I think like, yes, I understand the rarity that this is created. This is the actual thing, but then the other people and who are experiencing it are still going to experience it digitally. So, you know, the, the, where my mind goes with this is like, are we going down the road where we are going to have just less and less and less actual connection with people and develop these quote unquote, more ideal lives or be whoever you want to be in a digital space where you don't have to actually interact with anybody. And you can just, you know, sit there, be eating Cheetos and drinking Mountain Dew and never connect with anybody in person, but online, you're fucking Chris Helmsworth and you got a million abs and you got the Mona Lisa on your phone, but does it actually fucking matter? Like, it, I love that comparison. First off, I haven't had Mountain Dew in, in as long as I remember, but I used to love it as a kid. And then you pull Chris Helmsworth out of your head. Hey, you know what I can't figure out? Why person. would you ever want to buy digital real estate? I, I, I like what I love about real estate is you could be in somewhere, but digital real estate throws me off. But anyways, this conversation is, NFTs. yeah, it's right. Just, because you have one of one. I, I thought, Gabe, I thought you described that well, though, about the digital, that, that, that there's now a, a medium or a platform or a way to have the one of one. That was really um, well spoken. So thanks for sharing that because I hadn't thought of it that way. Dude, I've gone, de- I've gone deep in the NFT matrix, man, like deep. That's, hey. my, that's my like late night like reading. Hey, bro, what's cracking with an NFT from your uh, from your wedding? We can sell it online and see what we can get. How how was? Uh, I'm still waiting for MBV to 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 mint his NFT uh, alphabet. It's over not here. Not gonna happen. Didn't draw him well enough. Ended up <laughs> actually the uh, that was a cool little experiment that I did with 26 posts that all represented a word in the alphabet. Towards the middle end of it, I got a little fatigued with doing it. Just gotta be honest. But I had about 30 or 40 people that stuck with it the whole the whole way, which was really cool. Um, you know, ultimately for me, it was a little bit of a reach to think about minting them as NFTs. I would have need to draw on them a little bit better, I think. But we'll Bro, that would have been great. I, I, I think, think, I still think it's a great idea. We got to come up with an <laughs> NFT. But um, no, I, Jay, the wedding was, was awesome. I'm, I'm bummed you guys couldn't be there. Um, and actually one thing that I've been thinking about a lot, um, and I'm curious to kind of hear your guys' thoughts um, you know, we had a kind of a very unique circumstance in that, you know, we were planning to have this thing two years ago or a year and a half ago. Um, obviously, COVID threw a wrench in everything um, and we had to delay it and finally had our, our wedding or at least the celebration. We, we've been married um, last weekend. But I, one interesting thing that I've been thinking about a lot is, you know, when you're putting together your invite list for an event that special. Oh, you know, you're, boy you're so sure of like the people that you want to be there. And even the people that like, you know, you want to be like a part of your wedding party. Right. And it was an interesting kind of exercise for us to have to revisit that list, you know, a year and a half, two years later. And the reason I bring this up is I was reading an an interesting article about how the pandemic has forced a lot of people to like really audit their, their circle and their friends. And a lot of things have kind of like changed up And it was interesting to see, you know, some of the people that, you know, when we were coming up with this list back in 2019, we were like, of course, like, of course, like we want them to be a part of our wedding and how things change in what relatively isn't 
that that long of a time frame. And also on the opposite end, like people that I may not have even known that now, like I couldn't imagine having a, a, a weekend that special without them. And I just think it's, but, and at the same time, people that didn't change a bit, right? Like people that no matter how much time and most of it being family, like, you know, you wanted them there two years ago and you would absolutely love them there now. And I just think it was interesting to really think about meaningful relationships, how that kind of stuff changes. And, you know, there's a lot of really strong science back in the fact that, you know, it's, it's just as much a part of really being healthy as eating well and exercising is like the people you keep around you and, and the relationships you maintain. And I think one thing that was eye-opening for me was, you know, like keeping those relationships, especially the people that I wanted there both times takes work. It takes just as much work as eating healthy, just as much work as working out every day. Like, especially when you don't live near these people, like someone needs to make the effort to constantly reach out and constantly just like, you know, when I, I am in New York, like, you know, move things around to see these people. And I think that it was real eye opening to me, the fact that, you know, as much pride as I take in working out consistently, eating super healthy, I think that I can do a better job at kind of maintaining the people that, you know, are, are super special to me and kind of putting the effort to, to maintain those relationships. Because, you know, I, I, I love that people made the effort to come out and, during a time, especially where like traveling wasn't easy. And I think I owe it to them to make sure that I'm putting more of an effort to kind of maintain those relationships. So something I've been thinking a lot about, um, but I'm curious kind of, you know, has your circle of like people changed in MDV? I think this is super relevant to you now because you're back home seeing family for the first time in two years. I mean, it was a pretty big deal. Two yeah. years, bro. Two years. Two years without seeing my immediate family in person, which is, pretty nuts. You know, even though I lived on the West coast for the past five years, I would go home for major holidays or visit. And, um, you know, lucky enough to have a job where I can have some good flexibility in terms of what I do and able to do my job from the East coast to the West coast most of the time. Um, but with everything going on with COVID and the uncertainty at the very beginning, and then also having parents who are older, uh, and, you know, having a, a sister who just had a young baby, there were some plans that were in place and then got canceled and wasn't able to make it happen, but uh, decided to pack up everything. Well, not everything, but uh, packed up the car and drove cross country and did it in four or five days. And now I'm on the East coast, but no, Gabe, I, I agree with you, man. I think for the past two years, you really had to make uh, an effort. You saw a lot of people probably in, in, in your own life or in your friends and family's lives where relationships either uh, got cracked due to the, due to the stress uh, due to everything that was going on. Um, maybe you saw some people kind of fade away who you weren't able to keep in contact with because of you weren't able to just see them physically. Maybe their presence just wasn't there anymore. Or maybe just you went into or they went into a little bit more of like an isolated state. I think that that was probably pretty common. Um, there were probably also some people on the other side of the coin that furthered their relationships, really put an effort and really developed them. It's almost like the same thing with their fitness and nutrition. You saw people during the pandemic, I think as a whole, the stats are pretty uh, damning. The stats are really bad in terms of what happened in the United States in terms of fitness and weight gain and, and poor nutrition. I think it was like an average of 26 pounds gain. That's fucking insane. But there are probably also some really great stories of people who got their ass 
into uh, their garage and outfitted it or bought a dumbbell, bought a kettlebell. They looked at their nutrition and said, hey, this stuff's out of control right now. This is the perfect time for me to shape things up. And there's been some great transformations that I've seen as well. But you hit the nail on the head in terms of effort and relationships, man. If you are in a place where all of a sudden you just kind of give up and say, hey, I'm not, I'm not going to reach out to anybody. And you'll see very quickly that, you know, either people are going to fade away from you or you're going to fade away from people. It takes, it takes effort for sure. For sure. Jay, is your, would you say your circle is still, you know, pretty much in California? Cause I mean, you've been there since high school. I feel like a part of it is the fact that like, you know, MDB, like, like me, like we went, grew up in the East coast, spent some time in the West coast. And now we're both like in a, like actually a different state than even, you know, where we grew up or worked. Yeah, I mean, we have our, our family and close friends are definitely in California because that's where I grew up and our family really hasn't moved. Um, but some of our friends have moved, right? One's gone to med school, you know, Matt obviously moved down south, et cetera. But I, I, I've seen it the exact same way. I mean, we've seen relationships in particular go really great or, or not as great. And, and for me and our family, it's actually just brought us even a little bit closer together in particular. Um, and I think we got lucky that way. I, I think that some families have probably been torn apart in particular because they have different views on things. Fortunately, um, you know, our family had gone through a lot with Ava being sick, where we learned how to really um, communicate well, which I think was important, Ashley and I in particular, and then also our immediate family. You know, when you're, when shit's going down in a hospital and you're in there for months, you really learn how to effectively communicate because there's really no other option. And when COVID hit, I think it's the same thing. You got to learn how to effectively communicate. And some people just had such different views on it. Some people were super restricted and some people didn't believe it was a thing. Fortunately for us, our family was all kind of like appreciated different viewpoints and all kind of fell on the same point. Um, so for us, it's been, it's been good because we actually got closer, but I've seen relationships around me suffer. And that's been, that's been tough to see. Um, but I think to your point, uh, Gabe, you know, I got married a long time ago. I mean, dude, I got married in 2009. I mean, shit, I'm, I'm old. And uh, when I got married in 2009, the people that we had in the wedding party or the people that we had at the wedding is a lot different than what we would have today. And that's just natural. I mean, but, but when I look back, I say, wow, there's still some of the same people in that wedding party that I would still have today. Those are relationships that are really cool because it's hard to make new old friends. You know what I mean? So that's, that's the good thing. Let me ask you guys a question. In terms of fitness, where do we see the trends going? Um, you know, obviously when COVID hit, we had a huge influx of digital fitness. You had a company like Peloton absolutely explode at NC Fit. We have an amazing app. We had awesome programs that we put out there for people who were at home, who were, had limited equipment, you know, other companies. Rogue Fitness had a booming business through COVID. You know, I know that that's tough to say, but they did do very well with selling equipment to people who were buying it. We're kind of hopefully getting to a place where we have a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel. You know, we're starting to see people go back to gyms. I think that there's some lightening of this overall sense of like fear and uncertainty. Where do you guys think fitness is going? Is it is in-person coming back full force and digital goes away? Or is it going to kind of uh, remain a little bit split? Yeah, I think so, it's going to be a hybrid, right? Go ahead, Gabe. Yeah. Well, I mean, what I was going to say is even I think for the past three months, I've gone from what Jason just said, like it's going to be a hybrid kind of like split 
to, I think in person, I think the pendulum is going to swing the other way and in person is going to come back with more of a force than, than kind of people realize. I just think that by nature, and this is more for the people that were already doing in-person stuff before, like there's going to be, you know, as soon as we hit a critical point of people feeling comfortable enough, I think that the urge to get back to a routine and get out there and see your friends and be around people is going to be pretty strong. And I think that that's going to get a lot of people that bought the Peloton or completely outfitted the garage gym for that stuff to kind of start picking up dust a little bit and for them to really, really get out there. Um, maybe that's also me being hopeful because I, I, that's what I want to happen. I want people to start going to gyms and for, you know, packed classes and, and all that good stuff. But I, I think that, you know, if you would ask me the same question, you know, three, four months ago, I would have said, you know, I think digital's here to stay for good. I think that a lot of people are going to kind of, you know, split that half and half. But now I think that it's going to be a lot more, you know, quote unquote, back to normal, even though we'll never go back to normal, normal um, is, is just my opinion. Well, you can see the statistics. Yeah, go oh, ahead. Sorry. I was just going to say one quick thing before Jason enters here into the conversation. No, it was really funny about maybe funny is not the right word, wherever you land in this conversation. As soon as you got about 30 miles off of the West Coast and started traveling through the United States, <laughs> oh. COVID didn't really exist it until you got about, about 30 miles from the East Coast. And then, I mean, for, for real, in throughout the middle of the country, there was no mask wearing. You didn't need to have, show anything. You didn't have to uh, do whatever, no social distancing. Um, so it's a very interesting paradigm shift to, to be in the Bay Area a lot for work and also be in the Portland, Vancouver area where I live. And regardless of what you feel, this was just the facts of what I observed while driving across the country. You got to a certain point, it was a non, it was a non-issue, non-conversation. It wasn't, wasn't even like it had happened at all. Yeah, it is weird the way, uh, so I was in, um, one of the, re the reason why I couldn't attend Gabe's wedding is I was actually uh, supporting this event in um in mexico and where i was at was kind of like i was it wasn't like a major major area but man they were definitely much more restricting than even in the bay area where i was at so i was in oaxaca and in there every store i went into they pureled my hands or put hand sanitizer they took my temperature they made me step on a board to clean my shoes and in some cases they sprayed me with a disinfectant and I had to wear a mask. This is everywhere I went. And it's interesting because then you compare that to Texas or really anywhere else in the United States, even the Bay Area is not as restricting as that. And so it's interesting the way different cultures, different countries, different areas are, are reacting to this. And I wonder what will happen in the future. But back to the conversation about, I do think people are missing that in-person uh, connection. You know, my mother-in-law, she broke her ankle, like, I don't know, I think a month ago and she hasn't been able to drive. And the only people she's really seen is us because we'll go over there, we'll help her out, we'll bring her food, whatever. But she misses that interaction. She said, hey, starting Monday, I'm driving. I got to get out of the house. I got to come see you guys. I got to be you know, part of the community. And I, I think you don't realize what you miss until you, you know, when you're, when you're training nonstop by yourself, when you go take a class and you experience that energy, man, there's something super, super invigorating about it. And um, I think people will flock back to it. 
and uh, at times still train by themselves. But I do see this second January. It took two years to get here, but I'm a big believer that this January, this year, I think is going to be gangbusters crazy for the brick and mortar gyms. Well, I mean, it's just a fact that things like jujitsu or, or martial arts where you need an opponent, you can't really do those in your garage to the greatest effect by yourself. There are certainly things you can do. You can work on techniques. You can work on your, your shrimps and your Granby rolls, and you can buy the dummy, and the dummy can provide some good resistance for you and all that kind of good stuff. But you know, in those situations, you need to have human beings, other people who are going to be oh, in yeah. close contact with you. And I really think the same goes for functional training in a lot of respects in terms of like, if you're in a group class community-based environment, one of the biggest benefits of that is being around like-minded people who you're experiencing the workout with. Yes, you can do these workouts in your garage. I would say most people would say, no, they're not as fun if you're talking about doing group-based community functional training. Now, bodybuilding and all that kind of stuff, yeah, you can probably get away with it a little easier by yourself. It was historically a little bit more self-driven. But also, you know, when you're fucking going to Gold's Gym or you're going to Planet Fitness or you're going to LA Fitness, Part of the allure of going there is seeing those people who you don't talk to that much and giving them the head nod, going up to them, giving them a little fist bump when you see them pick up the hundreds and having those types of friendships as well. So there is an aspect of community kind of uh, in those gyms as well, of course. Yeah. Yeah, for sure, man. I, I, uh, I, yeah, I think it's coming back. I think it's going to come back strong. We're already seeing it. I think the, we're seeing it here in the Bay area. It's, 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 it's turned a corner the last like couple weeks. So I'm looking forward to it. Um, Did you guys ever develop any sort of like um, non-spoken friendships or bonds with oh, people, people at the th gym throughout the years? Throughout, like, would you just you don't even like, know their name? You just say, "Hey, what's never, up, bro?" Never. As soon as you know your their name, the relationship's almost kind of over. Like, it's been too too soon. Yeah, yeah. You, like, hey, man, can you get me a spot? All of a sudden, they become like your 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 training partner. You know, <laughs> and you don't even know their name. It's just the flick of the head, the the little head nod, the little elbow bump, the fist bump. Oh man, that's too good. Too good. Here's a question I had for you guys. Um, I was still thinking about, I, I rattled off so many things about this podcast because it was fresh in my head last time that Peter Atia podcast. And one of the other things he talked about was just how important grip strength is, which makes sense, right? Like grip strength, super important, especially as we age, like if you're going to fall grabbing onto something super, super important. Our, is the type of training that we do. And at NC fit, I think this is a lot less so because I think that, you know, we do incorporate a lot of like strict pull-up work and it's not, you know, the, the usual, like, Hey, as soon as you can do kipping, you do kipping. That's the only thing you do. I think we're actually really good about that, but is, are we doing a disservice, you know, in the space by, you know, teaching and being so reliant on the hook grip when doing barbell work? Like is, is, is Out of all so questions you came up with that one? Well, yeah, right. because like, you know, at least in my, in my memory, I don't ever remember being like, you know, doing a, a deadlift day or a clean day where we're doing stuff like just trying to grip the ball. And maybe that was just gyms that I was at, but is that something that you guys think is missing a little bit in, in kind of the, the space in our type of training? Well, I, you know, hook grip for Olympic lifting, I think is like a tried and true technique that. 100% of Olympic lifters are using in their performance of the lifts when they really matter 
to get the heaviest weight from the ground to the shoulders, to the overhead, or from the ground to the overhead. It is an actual advantage to use that grip in Olympic lifting. Now, maybe when they're training or doing supplemental lifts, like a snatch grip, deadlift, or clean pulls, maybe they're not using the hook grip in order to better train their grip strength. And I actually talked to, I believe it was coach Bergner at one point, but it could have been somebody on his staff. And he was like, man, one of the, one of the things that you can do to increase your snatch or your clean, like tomorrow is start working your grip strength today, because if you can physically hold on to the bar and it doesn't feel as heavy in your hand, or you can develop the muscles in your hand to really grab that thing, it's going to be a much easier lift for you. It's going to be much easier to get that bar from the ground to wherever you have to go with it. But I do agree with you in terms of not necessarily the hook grip, wrapping the thumb and then wrapping the fingers around the thumb. I do agree with you in terms of the over under grip on deadlifts where the over under grip on deadlifts, anything below like a one rep test. Why are you switching your grip? The transferability of that grip is nearly non-existent. But it's so much harder when double overhand. Yeah, but you're getting so much more benefit. (laughs) (laughs) Damn it, Jay, that's the point. But why is it so much harder? (laughs) The, the bet, you know what actually is funny about that? I don't, I you haven't used this grip in fuck five, 10 years. I don't let, can't remember the last time I used that grip. It almost is harder for me to use the over under grip than it is to use a standard hook grip with my both of my uh, knuckles facing forward on a deadlift, even the heaviest deadlifts. Um, but in terms of what you're going to get in carryover in holding an object, using the hook grip, thumbs wrapped around and your fingers, I think that that's a great option. You should use it. You should use full grip around the bar for deadlifts every now and again without using the hook grip to give the additional challenge. But this nonsense of over under on like 95 pound deadlifts, 115, 135, anything essentially below your one rep, if it's a test and you really want to see what you can pull, should not be used. Oh boy. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I, I'm the guy who goes over under, uh, especially like, I mean, if I'm competing and I need to get my deadlifts in, I'm going for it. But I think a little for different training, that, yeah, a little different in that aspect too. For sure, for training, yeah, I like the double over. Um, I I don't know if I've told you this before. So I'm with Casey Bergner. This is like, dude, this must have been 15 years ago. I mean, it was a long ass time ago. And we're in San Diego, and I had just taught a level one, and we're driving back to the hotel with him for some reason. And I remember asking him. I said, "Hey, man." So I really don't like the hook grip. It's really uncomfortable. It, it hurts my fingers, right? <laughs> In hindsight, I probably sound like such a wimp to him. And he looks at me, he's like, Jason, listen to me. He goes, <laughs> In Olympic lifting, there's a variety of different techniques you can incorporate, right? You have American style, you have Russian style, you have Chinese style, there's Bulgarian style, there's different types of techniques based on who your coach is. But one thing that every lifter across every country, uh, across every system agrees with, is a hook grip is a value is, is the way they lift. And I just remember him looking at me and just be like, dude, you're an idiot. If you don't use a hook grip, because it allows you to have a good grip on the bar without death gripping it. So you don't incorporate as much forearm and, and, and bicep, et cetera. But it was that at that moment that it really changed the way I looked at hook grip where he's like, look, all these different systems exist, but they all agree on this one area. So I started using it on my lifts. Now, as of recently, I haven't been using it as often as I probably should. Um, but I use it when I'm going heavy on, on the Olympic lifts. But as of right, right now, I don't know if this has happened to you yet, MDV. I think because of all the gripping that I do with geese, 
Um, the inside of my elbow, I don't know if it's called, I was looking up online. I don't know if it's golf elbow or tennis elbow has really developed some like kind of like tendonitis in it. And I'm, I'm going to try and figure out what that is. And I'll get back to everybody about my solution. I think, uh, I'm talking to Kelly Serrett about it later today. I don't, <clears throat> don't have as much of an issue with the gripping, but I remember when doing some gi jujitsu that because you are gripping the cotton on the gi so much of the collars that it is uh, pretty wearing on the forearms also can be wearing on the elbows. Um, but this is one of the things that like, I think is just such nonsense. I'm so glad you brought this up, Gabe. Like we have everyday people walking into gyms, looking to improve their lives through fitness. And then we're going to give them these like hacks or techniques that essentially work around making the lift more beneficial for them. Like, showing your athlete that, oh, you can go super fast with your 155 pound deadlifts and you don't have to hold onto the bar as much by using this over under grip. No, no, no. What this fucking person needs, this person needs to be holding onto the object and probably even slowing down a little bit more or maybe a hair in order to feel out the lift a little bit to get the full range of motion. Why are we pushing these people so hard to go through these workouts? Like their hair is on fire to have every hack to make it easier at the end of the day, when you think about what the goal is of a workout to improve your musculoskeletal system, to improve your cardiovascular system, to shed any excess body fat that you might have on your frame, wouldn't you want and develop your musculature? Of course, wouldn't you want to make the workout tough for you instead of making it as easy as possible? Is, is the leaderboard and tracking scores at the root of that issue? Ooh. Yes. <laughs> Dude, I mean, this is a great topic yes. of conversation because I, I, MDV, like what you just said, for many, many years, it wouldn't probably stick with me. Like I'd be like, hey, man, I'm trying to do more work in less time. That's what I'm trying to do. And I'm trying to win. Um, but as I've kind of, I, I guess, like kind of changed or pivoted, like I was doing those library deadlifts the other day. Dude, those things sucked. They were hard, but I didn't have a lot of weight on the bar and I was using double overhand. And I just think that my philosophy on training has shifted a little bit from, hey, I want to put up the best time possible to be the best in the world to, hey, I want to get the best bang for the buck as I can out of this workout. What is going to help me in this workout to live freely and fully outside the gym to go do things with my kids, et cetera. And I think that, yeah, the leaderboard and also looking, I, I think what's, and this is a pro and con, by the way, I, I'm, I'm obviously a big advocate for the sport of fitness. I think it's done a lot for a lot of people, but the sport of fitness has pivoted the mindset from fitness as a benefit to your life, right? So when you're looking at it from a sport perspective, it's like, okay, how do I do more work quicker? How do I develop techniques? For example, I'll give you a great one, a speed jump rope, right? Dude, I could do speed jump ropes with like the fastest jump rope in the world and I could do double unders and super fast, but am I gonna get as much bang for the buck as if I went a little bit of a heavier rope, just a little bit, and it worked my forearm strength, worked my wrist strength a little bit more, is that going to be a better bang for my buck? And I've shifted my perspective on that because I want to make the workout a little bit tougher for me instead of identifying all these ways to make it easier because I'm trying to get a better workout that's going to help me outside the gym. So I, I do think the sport has played a major factor in that um, for good and bad. How do you just, you know, pulling on this thread a little bit more, how as a, as a coach, do you like introduce that to people that, you know, really need it, right? To people that like, like they're warming up with this grip on the deadlift. And, you know, how do you broach the conversation of like, hey, you know, like, I think it might be beneficial for you to do this a little bit, especially when you have the people that are in that, 
you know, Kool-Aid phase of like, you know, it's, it's how do I PR this or how do I put the time on SugarWad that's going to impress my friends? I don't think it happens overnight. And, you know, I think that coaches and owners need to lead from the front with this stuff. The realization here is that 99.9% .9 of the people who walk through the threshold of your gym are never going to compete, not even compete locally. They're not going to certainly never going to go to the games. So these types of, even if you're talking about more advanced kipping types of movements or the rush to get people into positions of complexity, that's a, a, a whole different discussion, but let's keep it uh, in terms of like the over under grip on the deadlift where you can get some significant CNS central nervous system benefit from holding on to the weight. You can get additional grip strength. You can get additional forearm strength. It generally makes the lift harder. That person probably should be training that way in order to get the best benefit for what's going to help them outside of the walls of the gym more. Now, you know, when you're having that discussion, it can be sensitive because people do want to compete with one another. And I think that's part of the cultural issue that exists is that like, we have this nonsense that exists out there that your workout isn't a success unless you have a really great time in the workout, a great score, or you're have the fastest time. Honestly, what are the, the gains in your fitness that you're getting from going at an insane breakneck pace where you might not be moving through a full range of motion, where you might be using these types of hacks, where you might be sacrificing the integrity of the movement or putting your body into positions that are non-optimal. What are the gains there? Then if you just slowed down just a little bit and did the deadlifts properly, if you held onto the barbell in a way that also tested your grip and your forearm strength, as opposed to slamming the barbell off of the ground, using the over under grip and essentially making it all just bounce momentum and over under grip. Are there any gains there fitness wise, or Hell are you yes. actually doing yourself a disservice? I think that that's a really interesting question for coaches to ask themselves first in your head, when you're going out there to coach to your athletes, is, is this helping my athletes or is this hurting my athletes? And then also in terms of your own fitness, what are you demonstrating to them? Are you, are you showing them? I had a really, uh, this is a little tangential. One of my buddies brought this up the other day on the intro podcast. Athletes are eating fucking Skittles during the middle of their workout in uh, functional training gyms, in CrossFit gyms. Are you insane? Like, are they you want the, your workout they cards? Want the, they want the cards? Are you insane? Workout cards. Dude, God, get it. Have, have we lost our minds? And I, I think that is like, <laughs> Uh, a bridge too far for me, obviously you can tell by my opinion, but coaches, please like have this discussion with yourself. Yes. So there are cool. opportunities for you to show people some hacks here or there, or give them an understanding, especially on like a super heavy deadlift day. Yeah. The over under grip might be helping you out that day, but common sense wise, these people need really high integrity movement. They need time under tension. They need to be working hard. But they don't need to be sacrificing the integrity of the movement in order to just get the best score. Yeah. And where I would have a slightly different view on that is I'd say exactly what you said with the exception of some of these less complex movements or more cardio based. Um, you know, I, I do believe you got to throttle it. I know that I've, I've toned back my conversation on this. Like, yes, if you're performing the deadlift, I think that I'm the guy who'd have 225, get that reverse or the alternating grip. I'd be bouncing the shit out of that thing unless I was at a competition that required me to, you know, obviously not, but even if I was in a competition, it was required me not, if that judge was still counting my reps and they were saying one, two, three, I'd be bouncing as much as I could. <laughs> um, but, but 
in the gym, there's a lot of benefit and obviously slowing down the movement and encouraging, but where I, I, I take, and I, I think you would agree with me on this, like things like, you know, biking, things like even like burpees. Yes. It can get a little sloppy. I do think that there's times where you just kind of let the wheels off a little bit, but it's not at these more complex movements, like, like the clean and jerks, the snatches, even the deadlifts, you got, you could tone it down 5% and probably move a lot more efficiently and better. Like look at Rich Froney. That guy never looks like he's sloppy, never, but yet he's still moving faster than everybody else out there. And so I, I, the proof is in the pudding. You can do it. You just got to remind yourself to do it. We're, we're on a roll here. So MDV, I got another question for you. Oh boy. What do you do with the member that's coming in with lifters, Skittles? knee sleeves, grips, a belt, um, wrist wraps, He's, he's changing shoes from lifters to the nanos when it's like, you know, goes from like the lift to, to running, you know, what, what, what do you do with that member? Well, you know, personal opinions aside, you also have to remember that these people are paying the bills at the gym, right? And ultimately these members who are coming in, who are ardent followers of what we do, functional training, CrossFit, group fitness, if they are going out there and they're buying things from Rogue Fitness, if they're buying the supplements from the front desk or the drinks or a water bottle from the front desk, or they have their lifters and they have their knee sleeves. Those are your, probably some of your best customers. Those are the 100%. people who are going to be there through thick and thin. So you don't necessarily, you don't want to like bash them over the head with like the, Hey, what the fuck are you doing? You look like an, a dummy type of, of nonsense, you know, have some respect for this person. You know, I think in terms of where they might be putting themselves into precarious positions, you see somebody belting up, putting on their lifters and their knee sleeves for a deadlift that is far, far too heavy for them. First of all, you probably shouldn't be deadlifting in Olympic lifting shoes because of, you know, the way that you're set up. Not, that's a whole nother story. But this person's putting on all, they're strapping on their belt and their back is just looking like the arch scared Halloween cap. The better conversation there is to have them lower the load a little bit maybe take the belt off to actually feel the movement, feel what midline stabilization feels like work through some of that stuff and educate them on like, Hey, what is the use of the belt? Actually, the belt is actually a supplement to already the mu musculature, the midline, the supporting muscles there to keep your midline nice and stable as you're lifting. You don't want to use it as a complete substitute supplement, not substitute. So if you can't hold your midline down, even while you're wearing a belt, this weight is a little too heavy for you. Let's come back down a little bit. But don't, don't berate these people. Don't embarrass them. That's the worst thing that you could do. You know, have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with them. And remember, they're probably there. They probably look up to you. They probably love you. You don't want to jeopardize that relationship. And Gabe, what I would say about those people is, is like to have somebody who cares enough about what you're offering to go out there and go accumulate these different things, right? Olympic lifting shoes are paying attention. What, what does that do for their front squat position or to to have them care enough to go out there and make these investments that in itself, I think is really cool, man. Like a lot of people don't give a shit about anything in their lives they just go through aimlessly. These people are at least taking their fitness so seriously, maybe potentially too much that they'll go out there and go invest into it. And I think that's, that's something that's really cool, man. And I, I think that, uh, I, I don't know. I, I think that it, at times like, um, we give, some, I think there could be too much, right? but I'm that guy, right? I'll be Oli shoot, a belt, thumb tape, anything that, you know, and, oh, and the thumb tape, the yes, thumb tape right? And, and, yeah. and, and I'm that guy because you know what? I'm taking my fitness or at least my approach seriously. And 
Is there people that take it a little bit too seriously? Sure. But at the same time, at least they take it, at least they're prioritizing that. I think that's cool. So I don't know my perspective. My my one uh, injection there is you don't need any of that gear to take your fitness seriously. You don't, you don't need to wrap your thumbs. You don't need to wear knee sleeves. You don't need to wear (laughs) older shoes. You don't need to do any of that. All you need to do is show up to the gym consistently give your best effort and then keep showing up day after day, after day, after day. So, but if you were going to come in with the list of stuff, I'd get a leather belt for your back squats and deadlifts, thick leather belt. I'd get a neoprene belt for your uh, clean and jerks and snatches a little bit easier and a little bit less uh, constricting on the diaphragm. (laughs) And and we might have to have the belt conversation the next next podcast, because I got some thoughts there. I think that Jason might have some different thoughts. Oh man, belt all day, every day. No, I'm just kidding. I, I don't use a belt as much as I used to. Uh, we can talk about that though at another time, but I agree with what you said. By the way, that was a nice tangent or nice addition with, you could take your fitness super seriously and never have any of that stuff. Um, or you could take your fitness super seriously and have all that stuff. Either yeah, way. And th- there's also a difference too. Like if you are somebody who's training to go to uh, the regionals, I don't even know if there's regionals anymore or the CrossFit games, like Yes, you're going to want all these additional incremental advantages that gear would might give you. And you're going to have to test and put your body into situations and positions that the normal person should not put their body into. And then when things are on the line during competition day, you have to go for broke if you really want to win. Not saying do anything that would cause like serious long-term life-threatening damage, but like, yeah, maybe you're going to try to clean that 365 that you've never cleaned before. And it's going to look a little hairy, probably not the best route for anybody walking into the gym. Who's got a nine to five job and their name is Derek and they got three kids at home and you know, fitness is just a supplement to their life. Like, Oh, Derek, Derek, no need for the 365. Um, well guys, we got to jump on a call here for a little bit for, uh, NC fit. Um, we got a lot of exciting things coming up, right? We got, we got some challenge. We got some things coming up in the new year. Uh, we got, amazing stuff going on at the NC fit collective for gym owners and coaches. I'm super proud of what our team has been able to accomplish in 2021, but 2022, it's going to be one of those years you look back and you're like, damn, dude, that was awesome. We have a stacked team. We have great products. And I hope that anybody listening could uh, join us along the journey. We have uh, an EUE challenge that will be coming out um, where people want to join us, MDV, Gabe and myself um, for 40 days. And, uh, yeah, I guess what I would say is quick closing remarks. Uh, MDV, Gabe, what you guys got? Find someone on on your contact list that you haven't reached out to in a while that you wish you would have been like, shoot him a text right now. Give him a call. It, it goes a long way. The emotional side of Gabe. I like it. EOE stands for effort over everything. Uh, just for anybody out there who didn't know what EOE was. But here's the deal. If you're looking to get somebody uh, a gift and you know, don't know what to get them, Maybe set up a private training session with a coach at a gym that you know that they go to or give them the gift that they can go and then purchase that. I think that that's a fantastic way that that person who's the fitness lover in your life can get some one-on-one attention. And then you're also giving back to those hardworking coaches out there who show up every single day, cup of coffee in their hand, ready to rock and roll, but you know that they would appreciate it as well. Dude, love Love it. Well, guys, thanks for connecting. Congratulations to Gabe again, Gabe, on the beautiful wedding. And Congrats, uh, buddy. keep uh, keep getting after it. Let's go.